Well, we are going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians today, but I thought I would begin by making a few comments about Mother's Day and moms. I remember when I was a kid on Mother's Day asking my mom, Mom, when's Kids Day? And my mom saying to me, every day is Kids Day. You know, I think one of the reasons that we so often take our mothers for granted is that we've grown up with our mothers treating us like every day is Kids Day. Every day they have loved us. Every day they have thought about our needs. Every day they have done what they could and what they can to meet those needs. And we just sort of think it's normal. This is just the way that it is, and yet it is an extraordinary sacrifice and expression of love from our mothers. Did you know that honoring mothers is really important to God? In fact, did you know that honoring mothers made God's top 10 list? You know the top 10, the top 10 commandments? Number five in the top 10, here it is, honor your father and mother. The word there for uh, honor in the Hebrew, it means uh, heavy or weight. So it's not saying that we are to weigh our mothers. That's not what it's talking about. It is rather that we are to give weight to our mothers. And the mothers would say, my kids have given me plenty weight already. But no, that's not what it's talking about either. It means this. They are really, really important to us. They are weighty in our estimation. So it really is a kind of an attitude that we are to display towards them, to respect them, to hold them highly. Now for children, there is an additional command that the Bible has to say that that children are to do towards their mothers. And here it is in Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, children, this is your role, all right? This is what God expects from you. And just to make sure that you get it, I'd like every child under the age of 18 to stand up right now. Would you do that? And very loudly, I want you to read what this verse says. Okay? Everyone under 18 standing. Here we go. One, two, three. Children, now I thought that was a little weak myself. I I didn't sense a lot of enthusiasm, so let's do it again, all right? I think we need to do it one more time, Uh, loudly together, here we go, children, Okay, that was better. Thank you, kids. You may sit down. So how is this, how is this supposed to work? What does obedience mean? Kids, listen, this is what it means. Obedience means that you do what they say in the way that they would want you to do it. You do what they say and what they expect in the way that they would want you to do it. So, 
Obeying your parents in the Lord is an action. Honoring them is the attitude. Obeying them is the action. Now, kids, you're like, man, how long do I got to do this? Here's the deal. When you are out of the house and you are no longer sponging off your parents like you are right now. I mean, kids, listen to me. You realize how good you've got it? You wake up in the morning. You don't think about what you're going to eat that day. You don't worry about how your needs are going to be met. You haven't thought about the value of the square footage that your bed is requiring them to pay in taxes to the city. You're not thinking about nothing like that. You're just waking up. You've got it good. So when you're done sponging off your parents and you're on your own, then at that point, you're no longer obligated to obey them. But the fifth commandment is true for everybody. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old we are. We are all called by God to honor our mothers. So here's the plan then. This is God's plan. Children grow up in a home where there is respect and honor that is extended towards the parents and on Mother's Day specifically the mother and where the the mother is loving her children and modeling Jesus Christ and those children grow up And at some point, they get out on their own. And at that point, they no longer are necessarily obeying their mother, but they are always, always honoring them. So when that transition happens, then it is merely the fifth commandment that applies. But the fifth commandment always applies. So it seems to me that we, we have this backwards. I mean, we have it now where there's 365 days a year and one day is Mother's Day. Based on the fifth commandment, I would have to say that the way it ought to be is that 365 days, one day a year should be kids' day. And every other day should be Mother's Day. Mothers, what do you think of that? And all the moms said? Love that. Fifth commandment. Okay, with that said, let's get into uh, 1 Corinthians. And, you know, after Easter... We had our Easter weekend uh, on the resurrection, obviously, and then we took a few weeks where uh, we talked about faith and troubled times. So it's been a while since we've been in this, in this letter, and so why don't we just refresh our memory as to what, what is 1 Corinthians all about? Well, Corinth was a, and to this day, is a famously immoral and wicked city. It was a huge city. It was a metropolitan city. It was a city of great influence there in Greece. The Apostle Paul went there, and he preached the gospel there, and a church began in this city. And it was a great joy to to Paul. He loved them very much. Um, The people of this city, the gospel was brought to them, and, and it was transformational for them because they grew up with the value set, the Corinthian value set, which included things like promiscuous sex, the adoration of philosophers and orators, the exaltation of man, uh, materialism, and a basic approach to life where it is all about me. Okay, that was Corinthian. It is all about me. So Paul comes, preaches the gospel, transformation takes place, he leaves, and after he leaves, he hears that the old habits, the old Corinthian ways of thinking were beginning to rise up once again in the church at Corinth and was creating this horrible mess. So Paul writes this letter to to correct them 
and to uh, renew biblical Christianity, right authentic Christianity in the church. And the last message that we gave was in chapter 6, verse 11, a, a message entitled, People Who Used to Be. Because we saw in this passage this list of the kinds of things that the people of that church were involved in. And it's quite a list. I mean, it's quite a list. But then we get to the glorious words in verse 11 when it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. And on it goes. You were saved from that. And we just rejoiced in that little phrase there, such were some of you, last time. Because guess what? Such were some of us. I mean, here in our church, look around. We are, we're in the list. We've done the things in the list. We are sinners just like these people at Corinth were. But God's gospel through Jesus Christ has come to us. And now we have been and are being transformed. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. And we're working to get rid of the presence of sin in our life. And so that was a wonderful message. I just loved I should say it's a wonderful message. It's a wonderful truth in the message. And I hope that that still resonates in your heart, that we are people that used to be. Which brings us now to verse 12, chapter 6. Let me read our passage that we'll be studying uh, today. Here's what it says. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Now this begins one of the most uh, significant passages in all of the Bible, giving us a theology of the body. The body. So right now, nobody here should be thinking to themselves, well, this message doesn't apply to me. You're not a ghost here, are you? No, you've got a, you've got a body, don't you? I think pretty much all of us here have a body, don't we? Have you ever thought to yourself, what's the purpose of this body? Why do I have this body? You've got a body. Now, it may not be the body that you wish that you had, and it may not be the body that you used to have, <laughs> but you have a body. Have you ever wondered, what is, what is the purpose of the body? You ever, like, look in the mirror and be like, what's the point, you know? Why do I have it? What, what, what's God's intent for the body? Well, Paul's going to, Paul is going to answer that. Here today, and it's important that we understand it because we live every second of every day in this body. Okay, you have never been outside of your body. Every moment of my life, I've had this same body. I wake up in the morning, there it is again. Go to bed, wake up, it's the same one. I've never woken up with some other body, it's always the same one that I, it's the same one I've always known. And we, we, we love our bodies, don't we? I mean, we care for it, we, we prune our body, we dress it up, we stare in the mirror, we, we admire our body, we're fascinated with our bodies, some more than others. And I could give you names in this room right now, in fact, of some who may be a little too fascinated with their body. 
But what is the purpose of the body? This is what Paul is going to address in the context of the Corinthian uh, perspective on the body. It would be easy to answer the question from a Corinthian perspective of what the purpose of the body was. They would say, the purpose of this thing here is maximum pleasure. I have a body, and this body is here so that I may bring in through the five senses that I have the maximum amount of pleasure that I can get. They were committed to pleasure. They sought it out. They idolized it. They were, we would call them hedonistic. They, they loved pleasure. And that's why, to this day, Corinth is famous for its immoral and sensual pursuits. If there was something that felt, uh, you know, or was pleasurable, they wanted to do it. And so, in the culture, there were slogans, little mantras that were repeated that affirmed this passionate pursuit of pleasure. Uh, Much like in our culture, we have little sayings like this that just sort of work their way into our thinking. For example, uh, finish this for me. If it feels good. Okay, what's Romans 7.33 say? Quickly quote that for me. You know, I don't know either. All right. (laughs) But how do we all know if it feels good, do it? We all know it because we hear it all the time. We've grown up hearing it. It's a little slogan. It's a little mantra in our culture that guides a lot of people as to the way that they live. We have other ones like make love, not war. Or here's a, uh, one recently, whatever. Well, I think that this is the way it should be, whatever. Mothers on Mother's Day, do you sometimes hear that from your child? I hope not. Children, agree with me right now that you will never say the word whatever to your mom. That is not honoring your mother. Whatever, it doesn't matter. I don't care. So we have these same kind of slogans, and they did in their day, little truisms that people kind of begin to live by because it's repeated so much. It's almost like it's a, it's a point of wisdom. So that, for example, if somebody did something stupid... But in their explanation, they're like, you know, I was, I know it was stupid, but you know, if it feels good, you got to do it. The person who's listening be like, well, oh, hey, if it felt good, then it's okay. It's all right. Why? Because we all know the truth. If it feels good, you got to do it. See, it becomes almost a wisdom point in the culture. And so in Corinth, they had their own sayings. And these to us are not going to sound as cool. Because remember, we're translating from the, from the Greek into the English. So it may not have the same little sort of ring to it or whatever. But in Corinth, these were really cool things to say. I mean, they had them on bumper stickers. They had them on billboards. They, they, everybody, they love these little things. So Paul is going to quote them. In fact, he quotes two of them, one of them twice. Here's the first one in verse 12. He's quoting now a Corinthian slogan. Your Bibles have it in quotations. If you notice, that's why here's what it was. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. If you, were, if, if, if you were in Corinth, you could go finish this. All things are, and they'd go, lawful for me. Yeah, love that. They loved what that said. Now, here's how we would say the truth behind what it means. We have a right to it, or 
nobody can tell me what to do or who are you to put your constraints on me? I am free. I am free. Nobody can tell me what to do. I have a right to pursue this pleasure no matter what you say. And this was the Corinthian way of thinking. If, if there, it was like a birthright in Corinth. We live, we exist to bring pleasure to our bodies. The purpose of this body is to maximize pleasure. And so they would throw off constraints of any kind. Morality, spiritual truth meant nothing. Why? Because they wanted that pleasure. And they viewed that as what was really cool was pleasure. I got thinking about a series of commercials that I've been seeing recently when I watch sports, and I do watch sports, and godly people watch sports. Uh, but there's a series of commercials that uh, have been running, and, and they're kind of tongue-in-cheek, and they're, they're somewhat humorous, but they have, uh, I, it's so Corinthian, because what it, it portray, it's called the most interesting man in the world. And here is this guy, and he's, he's like old, all right? He's old, but he's got all these young, beautiful women just hanging on his every word. And it says the, he is the most interesting man in all the world. And it portrays this guy like he is, he's, the, he's the worldly man. He's the, he's the cool man. He, there's nothing that he hasn't done, uh, and he's way cooler than, than everybody else. And uh, so at the end of the commercial, it in, the commercial ends with him exhorting the people that are listening. Here's what he says. Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty, my friends. Okay. The Corinthians would have been like, amen. I love that commercial. I love what it's saying. We are always thirsty. We're always looking for that thing that is going to bring pleasure to us. Corinthian, my body, I have a right to my body, and I have a right to the pleasure that my body wants to experience. And don't you dare tell me anything different. All things are lawful to me. Okay? Here's the second thing. The Corinthian perspective on the body said, and regarding pleasure and urges, is that they are completely normal. Completely normal. Look at verse 13. Here's, here's a second saying, slogan. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach is meant for food. Now, that sounds to us like sort of maybe a little corny. But in Corinth, if you would have said, food is meant for the stomach, they'd have gone, and the stomach is meant for food. Now, what is that, what is that saying? Think about it. What is the purpose of food? The purpose of food is to feed my stomach. What is the purpose of my stomach? To receive and process food. In other words, everything can be explained on a biological level. Everything, it's just biological. It's just normal. Human meaning and purpose is defined by urges and the satisfying of those urges. So that food's purpose is feeding the stomach. The stomach's whole purpose and meaning is just simply to enjoy food. Now, we know that the Corinthians enjoyed food. History tells us that they essentially were gluttons. Okay, again, the mindset is... Everything's lawful for me. The purpose of the food is the stomach. So therefore, if there's something that I want to eat, I eat it. And they ate a lot. They never saw a buffet they didn't like. I think the most popular restaurant in town was Old Corinthian Buffet. <laughs> My body is for pleasure. I like to eat. Therefore, I am going to eat a lot. And they did. 
The purpose of life is merely biological. What the Corinthians did then is they had this little slogan, but they applied it not just to food in the stomach, but they applied it to everything. Everything is merely a matter of urges and desires and the satisfying of those with pleasure, including sexuality. What is sex? It's just normal. It's just biology. It's just body parts, and we're just like animals. There's nothing sacred to it. There's nothing special to it. There's nothing transcendent about it. It is merely the body and the satisfying of the urges of the body. And so they would say, just look around Corinth. I mean, it's just normal. I mean, everybody's just doing it. This is just the way that it is. We're humans. Come on. Don't sweat it. Now, let me ask you, does that sound a little bit familiar to you? What do we hear when we turn on the television and we, and we hear the daytime uh, talks and the morning talks and we hear people on the radio trying to dis- discuss, you know, human existence and sexuality and all the, the raging issues around sexuality that are going on in our country right now? What are the arguments that are made to it? We do not have the right to place our morality upon anybody. They have a right to do what they want to do. And by the way, the desires and the urges and sexuality, they're just normal. It's just biology. We're just body parts. That's it. There is nothing sacred to it. And so I just, just see how nothing changes. The world that you live in is the same philosophical worldview that has been around for thousands of years. The arguments are all the same. So in Corinth, when it came to these issues, I got a right to it. It's just normal. Life is biological. We're just animals. I have urges. I need to feed those urges. I need to satisfy those urges. That's all that it is. Don't think there's anything more to it. Now, in verse 15 and following, which we're not going to get into this week, we will next week, we see that here's the specific problem that Paul is addressing, is that there were men in the church who were involved in prostitution. Now, before you're like, you got to realize in Corinth, prostitution, it meant nothing. There, there was no stigma whatsoever to prostitution. Now, for us today, there is. Think of the governor in New York and what happened last year, for example, and how it cost him uh, his position. We have a stigma around that. But in Corinth, the children, they grew up, and every day, their parents, and they saw all the neighbors, the upstanding people of the, of the city, would go up to the temple of Aphrodite, where there were thousands of prostitutes, and that was just a part of normal worship. It was like going to church for us. You go, you have a prostitute, you come home, you did your religious duty. It was normal. There was nothing, there was no stigma to it whatsoever. And so, Paul is going to, uh, address that with more to follow i would next week might be a little sort of pg-13 i'm just going to say what the text says but the text is a little bit pg-13 next week just so you know but they grow up with they grew up with this kind of thinking and so paul's gonna have very strong words to say to them but his whole argument that we'll study next week is built upon a proper theology of the bible that he's talking about right here so the way that he approaches his argument is that He says, this is the Corinthian way, but I'm here to tell you this is the Christian way. So he is going to refute then what the slogan in Corinth taught. So back to verse 12. Notice now his point and counterpoint. All things are lawful for me, he quotes. 
But now he adds, but not all things are helpful. Quoting again, all things are lawful for me. Now he adds, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So the Corinthian approach to life and the Corinthian approach to sexuality was basically to say this. I can do it all. In fact, I must do it all. And to that, Paul says, no, wait a second. The Christian doesn't begin from that perspective. The Christian begins, first of all, by saying, asking, what is most beneficial? There are things that I can do, but I want to ask the, thing, the question, what should I do? What is helpful? What is good? What is beneficial? And then secondly, what might take control for me? The control of me. Okay, so we have two different ways of thinking. And, and I would say, by the way, you could put, you could just take Corinthian out of there and you could put American in there. Predominantly, not everybody, but predominantly in America. Uh, that's the perspective. I mean, visit the university campuses and you will see a very Corinthian approach to life. What can I do? What am I allowed to do? I must do it all. And the idea behind this is that we're free in doing this. Real freedom is the throwing off of constraints. I must be free to do what I want. And so today in the cultural centers of our country, we can go to San Francisco or Los Angeles or Miami or New York or even here in Chicago, and there will be people that are ready to march and wave banners in the name of freedom that I have a right to it and you cannot tell me that I can't do it. They want to be free and they view the pursuit of that as real freedom. But I want to ask the question, what is real freedom, really? I mean, think about if you were to go to, uh, if you were to, go to Holland, which I view as the motherland. If you were to go to Holland, in Amsterdam, where there are like basically no moral, the, the laws of the land have like basically no morality to them whatsoever, and there's a place in Amsterdam, it's called Needle Park. The, 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 the government supplies the needles for the drug addicts, and they just go there, and they, they uh, you know, drugs are made available to them. So if you were to go to Needle Park in Amsterdam, um, and to ask one of the guys there, one of these addicts, and say, hey, man, are you free? He'd be like, we're totally free here in Amsterdam. I'm free. I'm so free. I, I do drugs Every day, man, I'm free. Is he free? He's in bondage, isn't he? He is in bondage. And you see, this is what, this is, this is what Paul is wanting to point out, is that the world's pursuit of what they view as freedom is a mirage. Real freedom is not the capacity to do something, it is the moral discernment and ability not to do it. I may be free to do it, but I have this capacity not to do it. And this, by the way, is something that Christ has brings to the sinner. 
We are all sinners. That's, that's why we don't, we don't look at the people in San Francisco, or we shouldn't, or the people in Miami, or the people in New York, or the people in Chicago who march and demand their rights and are involved in all of those things. Because you know what? As Spurgeon said when he saw the prostitute walking down the street, there but by the grace of God go I. I hope there isn't any one of us that sort of look at that and say, well, I would never do that. These people, I can't believe. Listen. Apart from God's grace, there is nothing that you or I would not do in our pursuit of pleasure. As Robert Murray McShane said, the seeds of the sins of all men lie within my own heart. We all have the same sin DNA. All of us do. We share that. All humanity. So, but by the grace of God, there I am doing the very same things. But wait a second. Christ has come to set us free. And what does that freedom mean? It is not a freedom to do all that I can do. It is the capacity to ask the question, is this beneficial to do this? Is this something that's going to enslave me? Is this something that's going to compromise my testimony? Is this going to become a bondage in my life? Is this consistent with what God would want me to do? These are all things that prior to faith in Christ, we couldn't do and we didn't care about. But now, Having seen the glory of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, being transformed by the Spirit of God within, regenerated, I have a new mind, and I have a new moral capacity, and that capacity is not saying, I must do this. It is saying, I I must not do that, because I have a different goal, and my body has a different purpose, and Christ has done that for us. So, in salvation, God gives us different desires and a different perspective. Now I'm just not out there doing everything that I can do. I am wanting to do what is best. It is not a freedom to sin, but a freedom not to sin. And that's, temp- that's sin's temptation. Listen to me, friends. Every sin is a bondage. Every sin appears to be a freedom, but it actually is a bondage. This is as old as the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to Eve and said, hey, you know what? <clears throat> I hate to tell you this, but when God said don't eat of the tree, he was actually limiting your freedom and your, your experience. If you eat of the tree... He knows, and I know, but you don't know, that you actually will become like him. You'll be freer. So eat of the tree. And she did. So this is the way that it is. If you're here today, and as I talk about this, you know there's an area of your life that is that kind of a enslavement. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ can set you free from that. And he wants to. I don't have to be dominated by fleshly desires. I am not an animal. I'm an image bearer of God. And this brings meaning, transcendent meaning, to human existence. And that includes you, friend. Young and old, here, doesn't matter who you are, image bearer of God. That's a glorious thing. We are not animals. 
We're just not, we're not a pile of tissue. We're not a, a clump of passions and desires, just an inferno. That's not a, we're, we bear God's image. And as Christians, we are children of God. So, Paul here is exhorting these Corinthians who are beginning to think like Corinthians again and not like Christians, that they need to ask a couple of very helpful questions. And this is very helpful for us here today. Think of the week that you lived, the week that you're anticipating this coming week. To ask the question, first of all, regarding activities or behavior, is this beneficial to me? All think, you, you, I have a right to it. Okay, but that's not the issue. Is it beneficial? Is it helpful? Will it help or hurt in the long run? Think about the consequences of it. What's it going to lead to? If I sample this, will it just kind of enslave me to want to have more? Like Edmund and his Turkish delight in the Chronicles of Narnia. I got to have more. Why am I doing this? So who is really free, friends? Let's think about that. I remember as a teenager, I was a Christian as a teenager. And so I had rules that I had to live by from my parents mostly. And I remember looking at my friends and they, they were able to do this and that and all that. And I sort of had in my heart, kind of, that'd be so cool to be able to do that. Really. Who's really free? The one who can only say yes or the one who can also say no? The man who's given to pornography or the Christian who chooses not to look at it? The woman who sleeps around trying to find somebody to love her, interpreting the feeling of touch to something deeper, or the Christian who chooses not to do that? Who is actually the most interesting man in the world? The thirsty man or the satisfied man? Hugh Hefner or Billy Graham? Who's really free? So let's transition now, the text does, into, okay, well then what is my body for? What is this thing that I have? What's the purpose of it? So let's build this theology based on the text here. First of all, we need to realize that my body is more than appetites and desires. Here's what Paul says about the saying, food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. He says, God will destroy both. In other words, if you're looking at eating and the pleasure of eating and the satisfaction of feeling full inside my tummy as being where it's ultimately at, you got to realize both those things go away. They both are destroyed. That's not your ultimate purpose, eating, sleeping, sexuality, none of it. That's not ultimate. In fact, that's the second thing that he says here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. You see that in verse 13. He says exactly that. It is meant for the Lord. Now, some of you might be here and you might be visiting with grandma or mom today and saying, oh, here we go. I knew these Christians. They're a bunch of prudes. And they're reading a very prudish Bible. Actually, uh, no. Uh, well, some might be here. I'm not. And the Bible's not. Um, this is not prudish. In fact, in just a few verses, and if you keep coming to the church, you might get a chance to hear this. In just a few verses, here's what Paul's going to say to married couples. That you are to have regular sexual relations except when you're praying. Except when you're praying. Okay? So, we'll have some fun exegeting that particular text. 
And I'm hoping one of the married pastors will be the ones doing it. Uh, So Paul is not saying that the body is bad, okay? Don't buy into the old. This is what the Greeks would say. They had a dualism, okay? A platonic dualism where the body is bad, the physical is bad, the thing that really is, is what matters is the soul, the immaterial. So therefore, what I do with my body doesn't matter as long as my soul is alive. That's the dualism of, don't, don't buy into that, okay? Don't buy into that. Don't buy into, even from a Christian perspective, somehow seeing the body and God's creation as being anything less than very good, which is what he called it. The body is good, and the, 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 the desires of the body the good godly desires are good and godly. So he's not saying that. Here's what he is saying. That the human body was not designed to find its ultimate purpose in gratifying sexual desires. We are more than our plumbing. We are not simply animals looking to satisfy sexual desire. We are more than that. Sex is not a god. Now, it was a god in Corinth. Aphrodite was the official god of the city, the big temple there on the Acropolis in Corinth. It was the highest point in the whole city. It's the thing that they saw every single day. She was the goddess of sex and love. God, sex was a god in Corinth. But when it is a god, it is also a devil. And that is why our culture today is so dominated by sexuality. I mean, think about, if you have email, think about all the sicko emails that you get. I get them as well about all kinds of things. You think, what kind of world do we live in? What are they obsessed with? Somebody told me last night that the pornography industry in the United States takes in more money than the NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, and the NFL combined. What's our culture obsessed with? What are we really into? Watch the television. I mean... Think, think of how God, sex is a God in our culture, and that is why it is a devil to us as well. Obsessed with it, thinking this is where it's at. I must satisfy this desire. But the, the Bible comes along, and the gospel comes along gloriously to tell us that humanity is more than a pile of urges and, and tissue. You are more than your plumbing. So much more. We were made. For greater things, as C.S. Lewis said, famous quote, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, that is the tragedy of our culture. That's the tragedy of the man who is obsessed with the picture of a naked woman on a sheet of paper. When he is living for that, when he thinks this is the thing that's going to satisfy, he is, he is, uh, he is living for what is so much less than what God made him for. Not digital pictures of naked women, but God himself. You, my friend, here, listen to me, please. The passions and the pleasures, whatever they are in this life, that obsess you, that dominate your life, they are not what you were designed to find satisfaction with. And that is why the woman who wakes up in the arms of some man who is not her husband feels cheap the next morning. 
And the guy gets up and says, is this all that there is? And that goes on every day in our community. And yet nobody stops to think, why do I feel this way? Why doesn't it satisfy? Why at Needle Park do they stay there and have to keep getting more and more and more? Why? Because we were not made to be satisfied with these things. And as great a gift as sex is to humanity, it is not God. God is better than sex. And everything else. And I wonder if today, maybe, possibly, the Spirit of God might somehow speak to your heart about that thing that dominates your life and that you feel really, if you were to honest, is the thing that you really live for. And yet, you keep wanting it to do something for you that it just never seems to do. To this, God says, listen, here is my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that the sinful pleasures and desires that we have might be taken away so that we might be set free from those. And that we might now have the one thing that God designed us to find satisfaction in. And that is Him. To have a relationship with God. And that is the gospel offer. That is the message of Christianity. That this is real. It is true. It is not just an idea. It is not a slogan. That it is real. And millions have found satisfaction in Christ. And today I offer him to you as the one who is better than the buffet. He is, he is better than whatever the money you so much want to make to buy things that won't satisfy you. He is so much better than that. He is so much better than whatever relationship in this life you're thinking is going to satisfy. He's better than that. He's the greatest. And he loves you. I was driving here this morning and I called my mom to wish her happy Mother's Day. And I know you probably shouldn't multitask when you're telling your mom Mother's Day, but I was driving and telling my mom Happy Mother's Day. But on my phone you can't really tell, so. But you know what I said to my mom? I said, Mom, today I was out praying and I thought to myself, Nobody but God has loved me like you have. Nobody but God has loved me like you have. Even the love of a mother, as deep and rich as that is, pales in comparison to the eternal love that God has for us. Nothing here is like him. And for this purpose, we were made. So let's answer the question, why do I have this body? What's the point? Here it is. The body was made for God and his glory. Why do I have the body that I have? What is this physical thing that I wake up with every single day? Why do I have it? Here's why you have it. God gave it to you. As a vessel to use for his 
glory. And I will tell you, here's the real issue when it comes to this. It's a question of ownership. Ownership. Whose body is it that you are in here today? Now, we might say on one level, well, this is my body. Okay, that's true. But did you know that the Bible says that when God saved us, he saved all of us, meaning my body too? Did you know that your body, this physical thing that you're in, is a part of what God has saved in the cross, is saving now, and someday will glorify and save your body? That thing that you're in is a part of God's redemptive plan. God loves your body. Jesus Christ died, paid the price of his precious blood to save. Part of it is to save your body. He saved your soul for sure. He saved who you are for sure. But he is going to save your body. It is dying. It is passing away now. But the Bible says in chapter 15 of this book is a huge thing on this, that someday we will be resurrected. And God's going to save it. So the purpose of my body now is not to satisfy the pleasures and desires that it might have, but rather to ask myself, how can I glorify God with this body? Do you have a Christian body? Like, does your body act saved? Think of this last week. What your body did, what you were able to do, did it? Do you have a Christian body? Is your, is your salvation changing what you do with this body? Because the body has this amazing capacity. Did you know this? My feet are able to walk to my neighbor's house and to do an act of kindness. My feet can do that. This tongue that I have, eh? when I put a phone up like this, I can talk. And I can give a, a word of encouragement to somebody. I can lift them up. with These fingers right here, I can place them on a keyboard and I can type an email to somebody in some way that is kingdom purposed. My fingers can do that. My feet can do that. The body is amazing. All the things that it can do for God's glory. Here's some verses that talk about this. Philippians 1 verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. There is a prayer for each of us to pray. Jesus, please today help me to honor you with my body. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My body, a living sacrifice to God. It doesn't say soul, doesn't say personality, doesn't say mind and thoughts. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then a verse that we'll get to next week. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And there's the ownership issue. Whose body is it? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body body. Christian, listen to me. Spiritual unity with Christ has huge implications with what we do with our body. And what he's going to say next week is this. When we become, when we become Christians, we are spiritually unified with Christ. And when I am sexually unified with another person, 
what I am actually doing because of the unity that I have with Christ, I am bringing Christ into that immoral moment. And Paul basically says, what are you doing? Do you realize what you're doing? You're united with the risen Christ. And of course, this is more than sexuality. It is all the other things that we do with our body and all the other desires that we have to use our bodies to the glory of God. God cares about your body, which means that we should care about our bodies too. And there's a lot of implications to this beyond sexuality. I could do a message on gluttony. I could do a message on how to care for this vessel that God has given us to use as a tool. Our bodies are not just playthings. They're not just things that we can do whatever we want with. It is God owns it. And he cares about it. And someday, as he says in verse 14, he's going to raise it from the dead. Think of that. The same power that reached into the tomb of Jesus Christ and brought him back to life, that same power will someday be expressed in the tomb that your body is laying in and the bodies of loved ones are laying in. Boom! Back to life. Glorified now. God loves our bodies. Jesus died to save our bodies and we ought to care about them. And I just think, what a massive difference this makes. I think about young people who, um, I don't know that I was ever kind of taught about this sort of thing when I was, when I was uh, a teenager. Every day they're dominated by a Corinthian way of thinking. You have a right to it. You're just an animal. You've got just biological urges. You need, you need to satisfy those. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Whatever. There's nothing that has any meaning or purpose whatsoever. And Paul says to this that your body is a part of God's eternal redemptive plan. Our bodies matter to God and they should matter to us as well. So here's the bottom line. Bottom line, as you leave here today, to walk out with this thought. This isn't my body. This is God's body. To walk out with the thought this week, how can I honor him in this body? How can I use it for his purpose? How can I glorify him in the way that I use what this body can do? To ask questions like, is this helpful? Will this enslave me? How can I maximize God's glory? So I just conclude Romans 12. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is actually an act of worship. Let's do that. Amen.